Should we make better products that we could sell for better profits to our best customers? Or maybe we ought to make worse products that none of our customers would buy that would ruin our margins. What should we do? And that really is the dilemma. The time has come to kick off this magnificent series to celebrate the life, work, and theories of Clayton Christensen. Before we start, I want to thank our sponsor, Next Estate. Next Estate are specialists in investment and property in the Berlin market, particularly in times of inflation. You can find Next Estate at next-estate.de or next-estate.com. Let's get started with Matt Christensen. Welcome to a special three-month series to celebrate the life and work and theories of the late Clayton Christensen. To mark his work and commemorate his third anniversary, we are bringing you our most ambitious and happiest series yet. It will go in chronological order, chronicling his work with each of his co-authors. The series will involve Joe Bauer, Rita McGrath, Hal Gregerson, Scott DeAnthony, Michael B. Horn. We will talk to Taddy Hall, Bob Mesta. We'll talk to Afoso Ajomo, and we'll talk to Karen Dillon, amongst many others. But it left us with a dilemma, because of all the works of Clayton Christensen, there was one book that he wrote alone, The Innovator's Dilemma. And that left us with a dilemma. Who would we have to talk about that book? And as everyone knows, and has been touched by the work of Clayton Christensen, knows that he was an extremely humble and generous man. And the apple does not fall far from the tree because it goes for his family also. And to commemorate this work, we're joined by Matt Christensen, who is the co-founder, managing partner, and CEO of Rose Park Advisors. And he has kindly joined us here in Dublin in the iconic offices in the Greenway in Dublin St. Stephen's Green. Through planes, trains, and automobiles, he got here because we're in the midst of the worst weather, snowy weather that we've had here in Ireland in a long time and he made it, and it is a great pleasure to welcome Matt Christensen. Welcome, sir. Thank you. It's great to have you, man. Before we launch into the theories in the Innovator's Dilemma, and Matt unpacks many of those theories for us, I want to welcome many new audience members we have because this episode will be rebroadcast on the Disruptive Voice podcast. And I want to thank Katie Zanbergen, who has been instrumental in that and all her work in bringing us together as well. So thank you, Katie, and welcome to all the new listeners and new audience members as well. So let's get into this series. And Matt, I thought we'd start with Clay, because I'm going to call him Clay. I didn't know the man, but everybody I've spoken to says he was such a great, humble man. He mentions you, your mom and your family throughout the books, all the books, in the footnotes and throughout all the, the aspects of the books. And maybe we'll start off with what a great guy he was and how these theories stemmed from at home, because many of them he mentions and he looks through the lens of those theories from a family life. It was interesting. My, my, being an academic was my dad's third career, really. And, uh, and so for me, uh, he went back to get his PhD when I was... Uh, in my uh, kind of mid and early teens. And, uh, and so we could talk about what he was doing at work. And that was always far more interesting to me than what I was doing at school. 
so we, we had just wonderful dinner table conversations uh, about uh, what he was learning. And he would often say that he knew he didn't really understand something well until he could explain it to his children. Uh, so that was something that he did a lot. And, and, and as a result, uh, you know, we, we really, I think, got to see these ideas come together uh, at a time in our lives uh, where we could understand a lot of it. And, um, and so for me, you know, the, the Innovator's Dilemma came out when I was a missionary for our church. Uh, I, I was in Frankfurt, Germany for my mission, uh, and I got a book in the mail and, and a note from my dad that said, you should read this when you're done with your mission. Um, but I, I didn't know anything about it uh, until the, the book arrived. But we had talked about his research and the frameworks uh, for, for many years before that. And... Um, and so it was fun to see those ideas come together. What was interesting with that is that even though the ideas were relatively new, he was always the same guy. And, um, and, and from my perspective, uh, a lot of the things that um, people really appreciated about him as they got to know him as he became more prominent uh, were things that he just, he was always like that. You know, So when um, he, he tells a story and how you measure your life about talking with colleagues about how he doesn't work on Saturdays and doesn't work on Sundays and needed to get home early from work to, uh, to, to spend time with his family. Uh, and and I, I, that was my childhood. Like I, I was the person he, or one of the people he was coming to spend time with. And, uh, and I didn't, it, it didn't even occur to me that every parent wasn't like that until actually on my mission, I, I met a former colleague of his, um, who, who explained to me that he was uh, well known in, in the, the Boston office of the Boston Consulting Group for leaving, coming in very early, leaving early uh, so that he could see his kids while they were still awake. Uh, and, and literally, when I was 20 or 21, however old I was, uh, that was the first time it occurred to me that, that it wasn't like that for everybody. Uh, but but he, he, he was a wonderful man, uh, and, and I think uh, has inspired me, uh, at least, to feel like I can be better uh, and uh, and do better, and and um, and I'm grateful uh, for his example in my life. Yeah, and I, I was saying to you on the way over, we we walked over through St. Stephen's Green. I was freezing, and Matt's like, kind of going, "This is like fall for us, and it's December here in Ireland." And I I was saying to you that. I read How Will You Measure Your Life and it changed my life because it gave me new lenses through which to see things I was doing or not doing as the case may be. And I realized that you work hard to be with your family, yet through working hard you're not with your family. You know, so you might be like, oh, I want to give my family the best life possible. And actually you kind of then look in the mirror sometimes you go, Maybe by being around and being physically present is the best present I can mm -hmm. actually give them. That's a difficult thing as the world demands more of you and more of your presence, etc. Mm -hmm. And and I think in a lot of ways, just as technology has developed and 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 become such a uh, integrated part of our lives, harder than ever before. You know, I I, I think um, uh, you know. When my dad was watching me play basketball games, um, nobody was was pinging his phone trying to get him to respond to something, you know, so he could give me his undivided attention, and there wasn't much competing for it, uh, and that was important for me. Today, 
uh, you know, I go to my, my kids, uh, you would say soccer games, uh, and, uh, you know, there, there is something in my pocket that could take me away from being there continuously. Mm. And, uh, and so making the decision really very deliberately to, to, to be present for our kids or our families or friends or loved ones, I, I think that's something we have to commit ourselves to and, and, and something that while the book doesn't speak to that directly, I, I think it's a clear implication. I think it's important to say those things because it was one of the things that I read in How Will You Measure Your Life and um, Clayton was saying about like building in treehouse. I don't know if you were involved yeah, in that sure. project. Yeah, yeah. No, that was, that was me. Yeah. <laughs> so just to give context to our audience, uh, he, he was saying that anytime, it, it's just way easier to do it yourself. As a parent, it's way easier. I, I owed this recently teaching my kids to use the dishwasher. And I was like, kind of going, I could easily just fill the dishwasher, be done in two minutes. But I want to show them and go, no, no, you need to point them down. <laughs> you yeah. need to put the cup this way, the bowl this way. And I thought about your experience of even mowing the lawn and hanging onto the handle or the treehouse project. It, it, it just, it takes a different approach, I think, to always think about what am I teaching? Uh, what do I want my kids to learn? Then uh, how is my yard perceived? Or you know, does, does this clubhouse have the structural integrity that, <laughs> that would, would, uh, would make it completely safe? Uh, you know, those kinds of things. I, it, uh, it's something he gives credit to his own mom in, in, uh, in, in How You Measure Your Life and in many of the things he said that she would teach her children at a very young age, in part because she didn't want to do, yeah. <laughs> do stuff. But she, would teach, <laughs> she would teach her kids to do their own laundry and, and mend their own clothes and things. Uh, and, um, and it just gave them a sense of independence and, uh, uh, and ownership for themselves that I, I think is really important. You know, I think so, so often today, uh, I mean, both of us, you know, we're athletes, um, you know, feeling like what you're doing is something that you want, uh, unlocks your ability to really commit yourself to it and, uh, and, and, and to discover really how hard, you know, what are you willing to invest in something you're passionate about when it's yours? Mm. And if you're chasing it because somebody somebody else has told you it's important, or uh, you know they're pushing you, or you know it's because you do this for other people, that's just totally different, and 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 not sustainable, and and doesn't let you achieve your potential in the same way. And and that is very much speaks to the to the book as well. So let, let's get into the, some of the theories here. I, I remember speaking to Spencer, your brother, uh, in prep. And um, he was telling me that when the book came out, your dad came home and he's like, we're going to need some more books. <laughs> they like it. So let, let's use that as a segue to, to jump into the book. So I was thinking of a way to introduce it. And I thought I'd introduce the book with uh, an overview or an introduction and then let you take away a high level helicopter view of what the innovator's dilemma is. So I'm going to read this little quote just for those who haven't read it. Today's book is about the failure of companies to stay atop their industries when they confront certain types of market and technological change. It's not about the failure of simply any company, and this is the key point, but of good companies, the kinds that man many managers have admired and tried to emulate, the companies known for their abilities to innovate and execute. Companies stumble for many reasons, of course. Among them, bureaucracy, arrogance, tired executive blood, poor planning, 
short-term investment horizons, inadequate skills and resources, and just plain bad luck. But this book is not about companies with such weaknesses. It is about well-managed companies that listen astutely to their customers. They invest aggressively in new technologies and yet still lose market dominance. And here's a key line. The logical, competent decisions of management that are critical to success of their companies are also the reasons they stumble and lose their positions of leadership. So how can executives simultaneously do what is right for the near-term health of established businesses while focusing adequate resources on the disruptive technologies that ultimately could lead to their downfall? The innovator's dilemma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it is interesting. The, the, uh, the dilemma is kind of rooted in, in the, the idea that just because you think you know what should happen doesn't mean you can do something about it. Um, you know, after this book came out, my dad's told this story many times, but uh, he did a lot of work with the company Intel and, and presented uh, his research to, to Andy Grove, uh, who uh, sat through first meeting kind of impatiently, but by the end of it realized its importance for his company. And so I had my dad come back again and again and again and again to train the top managers at Intel. And um, by the end of it, a couple things kind of came out of it. One was that he said, you know, what was really valuable about all this training is it gave us a common vocabulary to talk about counterintuitive ideas. Uh, that, that was a really big thing. But another was that Grove identified that it wasn't really about technology. So in this book, right, the, the, um, the phrase that, that it was initially coined was disruptive technology, not disruptive innovation. That came as a, as a, um, the incorporation of the identification of an anomaly by Andy Grove that, that then, then got kind of fixed and expanded on in, in the solution. But Grove's point was in, in one of the classic examples of disruption that the innovator's dilemma talks about and the, the demise of the mini computer industry that is based in the Boston area where we live. Uh, there is nothing about the technology of a PC that was outside the understanding or capability of sophisticated technology companies like Wang and Nextdoor from Digital and Data General and Prime. The problem was the business model didn't, didn't work for them, it made no sense to them. And, and, and as a result, uh, was just something that they would never have interest in uh, under any rational st set of trying to understand their existing customers and, and what, what, what they would prioritize and look for. So the dilemma is what do you do when a new opportunity is incompatible with your business model. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and our answer to that generally is, uh, you need to start a new company, uh, you know, and, and kind of separate it, or sometimes we use the phrase inoculate it uh, from, uh, from the existing parent company so that it can thrive on a basis that makes sense intrinsically for that opportunity and not on the model that you already have. Um, there, there's a really interesting example. We, we uh, uh, kept very close track of Netflix over time, which we've used disruptive. Um, and uh, if you go back uh, years and years ago, maybe 13 years ago, something like that, in the US, there was a, a chain of video stores called Blockbuster Video. And most people, when they would rent uh, DVDs, they would go to Blockbuster 
rent DVDs there. And the, the model at Blockbuster was um, that you, you, know, you pay for a few days. If you're late, you pay fines. Uh, they would try to sell you a few other things while you're checking out. So you leave with your movie and they try to get you some, some popcorn and some candy and some soda there uh, and, and other things. Um, Netflix comes along and starts sending DVDs in the mail and, and it's, it's, it's a different model. Uh, and, and really a very different job to be done. You, you mentioned Bob Mesta. He, he could talk about this a lot more elegantly than I can. But at, at Blockbuster, 70% of the capacity was uh, fairly new releases. So if you wanted to watch some old uh, you know, classic movie or a foreign film or, or even just something that was popular a decade ago, perhaps they would have one co copy. And uh, whether it was there when you went to rent or not, you know, who knows? Netflix, by doing DVD by mail, allowed you to have almost infinite library uh, and, and they could deploy it all over the place. So the model facilitated something very different. Uh, you know, pay on a subscription basis, that was unprecedented. It meant that there were no late fees. And so Netflix began to get a lot of traction through DVD by mail. And what people, forget, who maybe didn't watch this very closely, is, is that Blockbuster launched an initiative that was kind of a Netflix knockoff. Uh, same model, subscription, that tried to capitalize on the advantages of the store, uh, but also uh, kind of ride on the coattails of this new model. It's called Blockbuster Total Access. And, uh, and so you could get, get DVDs in, in the mail, uh, but if you wanted to, you could return them to the store, no late fees, etc. Um, and it, it actually was quite successful for a time. But then what started to happen was if you listened to the old recordings of Blockbuster as a public company, Blockbuster earnings calls, quarterly earnings calls, they would talk about things like declining uh, sales per square foot. And that is, I think, a predictable outcome of the success of Total Access, right? If I am a happy subscriber to Blockbuster Total Access, then I don't go to the store, right? So predictably, uh, you, you see fewer sales per square foot. But that was just one of the measures that, that Wall Street analysts evaluated Blockbuster on. Um, you know, another is same store sales. I think a lot of the people who managed Blockbuster stores were actually franchisees. So a lot of the franchisees began to say, you're competing with me, you know, that you're violating our franchise agreement. Uh, and, and eventually what it led to was the CEO of Blockbuster getting fired. They replaced him with an executive from 7-Eleven, uh, who on the very next earnings call is talking about how to grow same store sales and sales per square foot and get people back in the store and they killed off total access. And then Netflix just kind of went back, back to normal, and, uh, and 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 you know eventually became the company that, that it is today. I'm not saying that, that Blockbuster could have beat Netflix, but it, it, it's a vivid illustration of how difficult it is to set something up as totally different and and give it the mandate, if necessary, to kill the parent company in order to grow and capitalize on a new opportunity. Uh, so, you know, the only way we've ever seen it work is to have it be separate and independent. But being able to say it that quickly really, I think, kind of obscures that it is a very difficult thing to do well and, and, and frankly, has rarely happened. Beautiful, beautiful example and well articulated because 
I, I one of the quotes and and our audience often write in saying you got to stop saying that quote is I, I love the quote by Buckminster Fuller who said there's nothing in a caterpillar that tells you it's going to be a butterfly, and I often think of say for example Total Access was this caterpillar that was this budding caterpillar, but the company kills the caterpillar <laughs> before it ever becomes the butterfly, and this really is the problem because. A, it's cannibalizing what we've already created, so we have something to protect. But that means that I've got the corner office, I'm the CEO of the organization, I gotta protect myself here, because I've got here based on the old butterfly and you're trying to bring in this new competing one. And in the book, your dad talks about the fail, failure framework and how it's built upon three findings. And, and I'd love you to take us through these. I'll, I'll tee you up for each, perhaps, as a way to remind you, because this is, uh, you know, you haven't read it as, as recently as I have, so I'll, I'll tee you up this way. So the first involves what your dad calls sustaining technologies, and, and these are important terms to understand, to understand the innovator's dilemma and how good management actually catches companies off guard. The quote to tee you up here is, most technological advances in a given in industry are sustaining in character. An important finding revealed in the book is that rarely have even the most radically difficult sustaining technologies precipitated the failure of leading firms. Occasionally, however, disruptive technologies emerge, innovations that result in worse product performance, at least in near term. Ironically, in each of the instances studied in the book, it was disruptive technology that precipitated the leading firm's failure. Sustaining Innovations are so important and attractive relative to disruptive ones that the very best sustaining companies systemically ignore disruptive threats and opportunities until the game is over. Now, I'll let you unpack that because this is sustaining versus disruptive. Mm. Also very important to your work in Rose Park Advisors because you look for the characteristic of disruptive while many legacy or incumbent organizations take the right off them because they're as Michael Rayner said to me, they will send you a bouquet of roses to go, you take that disruptive one <laughs> off because there's no money in it. So it's a challenge. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. You know, it, so I, I think the first thing I would say is in some regards, sustaining innovation kind of gets a bad rap, right? The, the, the thing that makes good products better uh, and most of the products that we use better than, than the ones we had before is sustaining innovation. Uh, you know, the vast majority of innovation that we see is sustaining in nature. It makes existing products better for, for best customers so that we can uh, you know, improve our lives, have, have, uh, uh, have more of, of uh, uh, you know, whatever it is we're trying to buy. Um, and as this highlights, uh, I think implicitly, it doesn't matter whether the innovation is a small and incremental improvement to an existing alternative or a big radical technological breakthrough. In almost all instances, it's the incumbent companies who are successful in capitalizing on the new innovations. Uh, so the, the example I like to use um, uh, that maybe isn't super flattering for me personally, I, I drink a, a more Coca-Cola products than I ought to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> more, more than probably four or five people put together. And, and uh, in, in recent years, they, they've launched just a, kind of an explosion. It, it, it's like a Cambrian explosion of different products. Uh, you know, Diet Coke with mango, Coca-Cola Zero, Coca-Cola Zero Sugar, two different formulations of that. 
Coke Zero, uh, no caffeine with vanilla, you know, yeah, yeah. all these different things, all to try to get you to drink, you know, pick Coke when maybe you're considering picking something else. Uh, and, and, you know, in that, all they've done is change a flavor. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, improved my life by some small, tiny increment. Uh, on the other hand, in uh, telephony, the, the evolution technologically from digital signal switches to optical signal switches required really like breakthroughs in our understanding of physics, right? And wave division, multiplexing, other things uh, has, has come into being our understanding of, of the nature of light has, has uh, become far more practical and, and uh, quantified because of the need to, to, to make that product evolution. The products are radically different, and it is the same companies who made the digital switches who, who now make the optical sw switches. And it's because it let them sell a better product to Verizon and NTT Docomo and, and, and uh, Deutsche Telekom and so forth. Uh, so whether it was, you know, a small incremental improvement like, you know, uh, blueberry Diet Coke or the, the radical technological breakthrough, it is sustaining innovations. And the effect of those has been to perpetuate the trajectory of improvement that those incumbents were already on before. Uh, our lives are better in, in one case marginally and in the other substantially. Uh, but in both cases, I think what, 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 what we can also observe is that the, actually the dynamics of the industry didn't change. You know, the, the product prolif proliferation of Coca-Cola, I don't think, has put Pepsi out of business. Uh, you know, Dr. Pepsi, you, you name it, all these, they're still there. Uh, and, and similarly, the radical technological breakthroughs in, in telephony haven't resulted uh, in uh, an entirely different uh, business model paradigm for the companies that, that provide uh, telephonic equipment. Um, and critically in all of that, it also wasn't new entrants that were, that were bringing about the, the sustaining innovation. It was the incumbents because as uh, you know, Nokia or Ericsson go and talk with their customer and ask them what to do and what they need, uh, they, they come back with very clear marching orders about how the product needs to evolve. And they realize that you know, they need to be able to not have to switch something that comes in on fiber into electric and then back into fiber if it's not going to have latency and all those things. Uh, and, and so they have to invent new technology and, and, and really um, kind of break new trails uh, from, from a technology perspective. Uh, but what it's letting them do is serve their best customers better. Mm -hmm. New entrants don't have access to all of that technology. They don't have access to those companies. You know, pe people who've been entrepreneurs at small businesses know how hard it is even to get an audience with a large customer, let alone to have that large customer say, here's our roadmap, this is where we want to go. If you can help us get here, you know, we'll, we'll buy from you. Uh, and, and, and so just the deck is stacked against them. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's why a big part of what the Innovator's Dilemma observes is that if your ambition as a new entrant into an industry is to leapfrog ahead of the existing uh, incumbents and build a better mousetrap or outmaneuver them because you're nimble and they're old and lethargic, uh, the probability of your success is exceptionally low. Now, it also is worth observing that the, the phenomena that, that disruption and the innovators dilemma broadly speak about are probabilistic. So we don't ever say it is literally impossible 
to enter a new market with a sustaining innovation and be successful. We say it is extremely improbable. Mm -hmm. And we also don't say that coming up with a disruptive innovation is a guarantee of success. Other things matter, like execution and quality of management and luck and, and those things. But, but probabilistically, as a new entrant, your odds of success are higher with a disruptive innovation relative to a sustaining one. Beautiful. And here are some lenses. Now look at what you're seeing. At least improve your odds so you're not competing against look as is the title of that book. But there's a, there's a part you mentioned there, so a better mousetrap. So this is me as a legacy organization. I experienced this. My first career after professional sports was media. And I went in as the digital guy. <laughs> so media company, digital guy. And you're kind of getting excited about like a 10 grand deal. And nobody turns their head to a 10 grand deal because it's like kind of going, well, A, you're wasting a lot of time for very little return. <laughs> and B, you're probably cannibalizing us in some way. So again, try to kill the caterpillar all the time. And you're kind of going, but this is going to be our future. And as a result, you lose your you lose the capability building for the mm. future. But I wanted to talk about the better mousetrap from the perspective of the person buying the mousetrap. Because... The second of the failure framework, there's three points, is how the pace of technological progress outstrips what the market needs. Now, I remember that with the Nokia phone, there was loads of features on it, and you're kind of going, I don't, I don't really need half of these features. I don't even know how to work them. This is kind of happening now where you might even see with the iPhone, we're on iPhone 14 or whatever it's on at now, and some people then have kind of copycat phones that are kind of going, you know what, it's good enough. Mm -hmm. And this is the whole idea of overshoot. This is an important concept to understand, to understand the dilemma. That's exactly right. When a product isn't good enough for what people need it to do, they crave more performance. And as long as they crave more performance, you're rewarded for giving it to them. Uh, one of the things that, that the, the innovator's dilemma identifies is there are different tiers of the market. And so there's a, a often you know, a low-end tier that doesn't have a lot of demands, is very easily satisfied. Uh, as a result, they often will treat a product like a commodity and trade it off for whatever is cheaper. Uh, and there's also very demanding customers who will always ask for more. Uh, and so if what you're trying to do is build something better that you can sell the better to, to higher paying customers, there's usually somebody who will always pay more for, for whatever it is you're trying to sell. And uh, as a result, if, 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 if what you're looking for is ways to make the product better, usually we'll be able to find somebody who is telling you how that can be. Uh, and, and what you often will neglect is that for the majority of the market, you often start to, 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 to make something that they don't need. Uh, and, and you can see that in, in different industries in different ways all the time. Uh, you know, a lot of times software companies will have to kind of will obsolesce uh, whatever it is you bought to force you to change <laughs> because you're already happy with what they've given you, right? And, and so they just say, like, we're going to stop supporting this, and then you have to upgrade. But what an incredible indication that they've already overshot the performance that you need from them, uh, that you literally have hung on to this you know, fossilized piece of software so long that, that they, they won't support it anymore. Uh, it, it's a clear indication that there's an opportunity for someone to come in underneath and, and have a different model that uh, caters to, to people who've been overshot, doesn't have to have all the bells and whistles, but, but maybe is cheaper or easier to access or so forth. Um, 
so overshoot is a big part of, of, of how disruption, the, 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 the mechanism that, that kind of creates the opportunity for people to come in at the low end. Mm -hmm. And you made me think there about how, for example, certain phone manufacturers will, uh, the apps won't work on that phone anymore, so you have to upgrade to get a new phone. So yeah, I, I, I hear you. <laughs> but um, the concept overshoot is, I, I thought about, for example, Dollar Shave Club. So, mm -hmm. you know, you got seven blades, now you got eight, now you got nine, and you're kind of going, I only need one, and then you'll go with the, the cheap one. But it, I'm going to sneak in here. We were in the middle of the fra failure framework, but I thought I'd sneak in because you alluded to it, the concept of a non-consumer. Mm -hmm. So this is where there's a, a, a segment of the marketplace that something is better than nothing. Mm -hmm. And that's a key concept to understand as well. Yeah, and, and I think critically in, in, in that, that cohort, uh, you know, people whose alternative is, not, are, are, is nothing are the very best possible customers for a beta product. It, for a product that doesn't work, that has flaws, that has issues, when your alternative is nothing, you live with the issues. Uh, you know, if, if your alternative is something that is high functioning and elegant, and then somebody comes and says, "Would you try this thing that kind of is held together with duct tape and, and bubble gum?" Uh, they don't want it. Mm -hmm. and, and so, finding non-consumers, I think, for young companies in particular, is um, is is just a huge blessing. It may look like a niche, but but finding customers who are happy to have your crummy product uh, is 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 pivotal in being able to make something that is eventually successful. Uh, because you need them to use it, you need them. You need to understand what they need it for, how you can sell them something that they need for a price that is high enough that they that you can cover your cost, but that they're able to pay it. You know, just figuring that whole model out. Uh, Non-consumers actually are a lot more forgiving than uh, than connoisseurs in, in an industry who have lots of options, who are very savvy in how they pick what they want, uh, and and who are expecting something that is very high functioning. We might wrap that around in a moment. We'll, we'll give you some examples and we'll give examples of the mini mills, for example, or the disk drive or PC industries and how they, they sneak into that segment of the market. But then almost the incumbents, like I said, Michael Rayner said, here's a bouquet of roses. Thanks for dealing with that segment of the market. Totally unprofitable. Mm -hmm. But they figure out a way to make it profitable. You take your eye off them and you come back and they've built capabilities and they're actually much better and they figured out how to come up the marketplace a little bit and then they become a competitor to you. So I'm just planting that seed for our audience because there's a third element of the failure framework that's important to understand. The conclusion by established companies that investing aggressively in disruptive technologies is not a rational financial decision for them to make has three biases and the three biases are on a top level First, disruptive products are simpler and cheaper. They generally promise lower margins, not greater pro uh, profits. Second, disruptive technologies typically are first commercialized in emerging or insignificant markets. And third, leading firms' most profitable customers generally don't want and indeed initially don't use or can't use product based products based on disruptive technologies. So there's there's a lot in there, but. I'd love you to unpack that at a high level. Yeah, um, I'd say a few things. So one is, um, 
it's interesting when you talk with entrepreneurs, uh, they often will give you this sort of origin story about how they came up with the idea of their their business that they were you know, in the shower one morning. They had this brilliant idea, kind of this eureka moment, um, and uh, and that they were the first person to think of this. But as you really do the research, what you usually will find is that somebody at an incumbent company in that industry already had this idea and concluded it doesn't work. Uh, and that's not a bad thing. That's not a problem. It doesn't mean that the, the entrepreneur's idea is a bad idea. Uh, in fact, it's, it's in a lot of ways reassuring because you very much, as an investor, you, you very much want to feel that the incumbents in the industry are not going to be interested in, in the, you know, a, a young startup that you're backing. Uh, so, uh, having a company that uh, doesn't have a model that works with the existing incumbents, that seems like a niche, that seems unattractive, that targets customers who nobody wants, uh, all those things are, are actually a lot of comfort uh, when you're taking a risk on a young company. And, um, and so we really want to, you know, when we invest in companies, we want to kind of go in with the assumption of, uh, let's assume that the incumbents in this industry have thought of this before, why aren't they doing this now? Uh, and, and that just ends up being, I think, a, a really helpful kind of framing uh, to understand that if, if this is going to be disruptive, uh, it, it needs to look unattractive to the incumbents in the industry. Or, you know, as a counterfactual, what, what could happen is if you start to show success with whatever you're doing, they may say, oh, how interesting, you know, Aiden, thank you for letting us know about this interesting opportunity. We'll take this from here and, and they'll crush you. Uh, so, so you want them to have known about it before and have decided not to do it because then as you start to succeed, they can look at it again and say, yeah, we knew about that thing and we chose not to do it. Do you remember we had a meeting about it? It doesn't make any sense. As you look at the examples in the innovator's dilemma um, in the steel industry, uh, the electric arc furnace in a mini mill was not proprietary technology unknown to the integrated steel mills in the U.S. It, it was not a, a mystery. It was not a black box. They could have deployed that technology. They chose not to for half a century. And, uh, and in the meantime, many of them went bankrupt and were liquidated and consolidated and others went through restructuring. Uh, so it, it, it um, you, know, you, you want to be able to take comfort in the fact that whatever it is you're looking at is not interesting to the to the existing incumbents. You you teed us up there for some examples. So the examples really bring some of these theories to life, and we'll touch in and out of the theory as we go. But I, I remember reading about competing against luck and the jobs to be done theory, and on jobs to be done theory coming soon with both Taddy Hall and Bob Mesta. He wrote that it took 20 years to create that theory because there was not there wasn't much data available for such stuff. And then with this drive, he had reams of data, and it, it took mm. about eight to ten years to write the innovator's dilemma because he had that data. But the data was mainly in the disk drive industry, and that's where he started to see this formula or this theory, and then started to apply that lens to different industries like steel industry, like PC. So let's get into the, some of those. I, I'd love for you to share, uh, maybe starting with the disk drive industry, the things we talked about, the frameworks we talked about, maybe pop in and out some of the ways managers were like kind of going, there's nothing in it. We looked at it before. Look, we have it on the shelf here. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants it. 
because there's so many examples there. And I, I wanted to say to you, many of our audience are those poor unfortunates who work in incumbent <laughs> organizations who are jumping up and down going, this thing has potential. And of course, the caterpillar gets killed. Right. It's so frustrating for people. And I, I heard what you said earlier, and I wanted to repeat it. Like in Intel, this gives you a common framework, a common language. And I think that's what, one of the reasons I was so keen to, to just shine a light on this work and, and make sure that the world knows about it, because it not only helps you in your personal life, but it absolutely helps you in the business world as well. So over to you maybe to share the disk drive industry. Yeah, the, when, when my dad was starting his research, uh, a, a friend uh, who, who, who became a, a longtime friend, who became a colleague of his later, uh, Kim Clark, uh, said that the disk drive industry is like the business equivalent of fruit flies. It's just the lifespans are very short. And so you can kind of study many generations in a relatively brief period of time. And uh, in the disk drive industry, there was something called disk trend report that was, uh, rather than a sample, it was like a full census of the industry. Every product that got launched had sales information, a bunch of other data. It was just, it's very unique. Not many industries have that, that level of data and transparency. So what you see in a lot of kind of the business literature of the time is lots of analysis of this drive industry because there is so data rich. Um, but what it showed, uh, was this, this phenomenon of disruption that, that, uh, uh, there's a form factor to disk drives of a certain size drive that would plug into a certain size uh, computer. And as those computers would get more sophisticated, people would demand more storage on the drive. Uh, and, and so, you know, if you have disk drives in a mainframe, uh, nobody is saying to you, hey, do you think there's a way you could make that disk drive smaller and use less energy? Uh, it plugs into the wall. Nobody was worried about the energy, especially in those days. And what they really needed was something that was faster and, and held more data. And, uh, and so improving the density on the, on the, on the plate uh, and, and the speed with which the, the, uh, the, the plate could turn and the head could read, that was, that was the whole story. And, um, and so when, when uh, new innovations came along or, or, or new, new uh, ideas came along that suggested you could do this with a smaller drive, basically your customer, if, it's, you know, if you're selling the mainframes, the uh, you know, Univac or Sperry or those guys, IBM, I would say, why would I buy this smaller form factor? Uh, so that smaller form factor doesn't take root in the mainframe uh, computer manufacturers. The smaller form factor takes root in what was at the time called mini computers that probably had a footprint that includes the, your seat and my seat, uh, you know, the size of a desk uh, that then had a smaller disk drive. And that then becomes successful because the minis are disruptive themselves. They sell to a different category of, of company that can't afford a mainframe that fills a room, but can can buy a mini. And when uh, the, the disk drive manufacturers who make, make the smaller form factor disk drives talk to Digital and Wang and Nixdorf and ask them, what do you want? They say, well, you know, better, better memory density on this plate would really be helpful. If it was faster, that'd be great. And, so as they listen to those customers, the, the, the information they get is not, hey, if you could come up with a way to shrink this and put it in, in an even smaller box, that'd be great. Uh, so they don't do that. 
And uh, so the companies that get traction doing that are the ones who sell to a different customer that has a different business model that sells through retail instead of enterprise sales. And so you, you can kind of go through this, this evolution over time of smaller and smaller and smaller disk drives that eventually become steady state electronics being sold into different size applications by different companies uh, each time because the better the disk drive company listened to its customers, the more they would hear, give me more memory, you know, more, more storage density, faster read time, fast, all, all these things that are antithetical to the smaller form factor that just each time you go with the smaller form factor sacrifices plate surface area, which is how you're storing uh, the data to begin with. It's a great example. I hope you see now how the theories are coming to life where for example, there's no market in that thing. And my best customers want better, not worse performance, mm -hmm. etc. But it made me think of a couple of just connecting the dots between some previous shows. So we had Alex Osterwalder on the show talking about the business model canvas. And he told us about, for example, like Nestle, who created Nespresso, they created the Nespresso machine years before there was a business model for it. And, and it was like on the shelf and they had to dust it off and wait for somebody to figure out a good business model for it. And it made me think that oftentimes a company creates a solution but hasn't yet found the problem for that solution. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and for example, one of the great stories, and it's probably my favorite of all your dad's stories, is the story of how Honda took America. So the, the story is like, oh, you know, business folklore, these guys came in and just absolutely took over and took on Harley Davidson and all those guys and brought in a brand new product. And it's not at all the case. And, and it reminds me of how you if you give the innovators within an organization enough runway, they can actually find a solution for the problem they've or find a problem for the solution they've actually created. Mm -hmm. And I'd love you to tell that story of the Honda. Yeah. So basically, it's the Honda Cub, right? That uh, that they had a motorcycle that um, was uh, low cost, versatile, um, but uh, you know, not not as uh, not designed to to do long road trips like like the Harleys Harleys were at the time, um, but uh, it, it came in uh, what we would in the States call basically like a dirt bike that got used by the, the frustrated uh, Honda salespeople who weren't able to move, uh, move motorcycles, would ride it around in the mountains in California uh, just to blow off steam. And it was a small, nimble enough machine that you could do that. You would never do that in a Harley. Um, it, too big, it would break uh, and, and you would probably kill yourself. Um, but other people saw it and, and got interested in this kind of unique application for this this uh, for the Cub uh, that caused it to kind of take off and get popularity. But even as it did that, uh, you know, it, it's not among a customer base that, that Harley or other uh, similar motor, mo motorcycle manufacturers were interested in. Uh, certainly not a use case that they were interested in. It had nothing to do with their brand image or the way they position themselves. So they let Honda come in and kind of get root in this this use case that just seemed at the beginning to be niche. I mean, it, the, the, the first application was frustrated salespeople <laughs> finding a way to blow off steam. You know, that, that doesn't seem like it would be a very large market and you know, maybe the best salespeople don't ever get frustrated. So your, your customers maybe aren't even attractive. Uh, but eventually, you know, as we, we've talked about already, the, the product gets better and you start to make it, uh, you know, 
uh, highway worthy and and uh, faster and and uh, kind of morphs into bullet bikes and uh, and, and automobiles uh, and, and that's how you get Honda that you have today. I can imagine those kind of guys. I, I I can't sell this thing. I'm going out in the on the on the hills of California, but uh, one of the things that kind of reveals is okay. So I'm Harley. I see these things and I go, that that thing. That's not a competitor at all. So I, I again, I turn my way. I, I snub it. I look down my nose at it. Then it starts to build a market, and all of a sudden, somebody in finance goes, "Hey, those Honda guys are they're building something there. Why why did we miss it?" And maybe somebody in the company's like, "Oh, well, we we did say about it, but remember, remember that meeting we had? Like to your point, mm-hmm. and I presented it, and I put all these slides up, and everybody said not to bother." And then, as your dad says, you go, okay, now let's make a move, and it's too late. Mm. They've already mm. cornered that part, building from the non-consumer, building capability. But even still, as he says in the book, you're Harley. You go, okay, we're going to release a, a lower-class bike. And somebody goes, well, wait a second, I'm in marketing. That's going to destroy our brand. Mm-hmm. We're known for this thing. We've built mm-hmm. a brand on this thing. So, hence the dilemmas. Yeah, this that's is right. so hard. There's, there's a, uh, this isn't in, in the dilemma, but in, in the course my dad taught, there's a great case about a, uh, a company called Sonosite that made hand, handheld uh, ultrasound devices. And in the case, there's a story about the CEO going on a sales visit uh, with, with one of his salespeople, and they had a low-end uh, uh, product, and they were kind of struggling with uh, you know, do we? Uh, how do we prioritize this this disruptive low-end product with other opportunities, including some kind of desktop-based ultrasound that they had worked on? And um, he he wanted this sales guy to try to sell the the handheld, and uh, the sales guy would not take it out of the bag. Literally, the CEO had to kind of intervene in the sales meeting and pull it out. And say, let's talk about this, and and it's because the commissions on on the 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 handheld are not nearly what they were on the desktop device, and so throughout an organization, you, know, you mentioned marketing at Harley, but you know the same thing would be true, you know, regardless of what happens in corporate marketing. You walk into a dealership, and uh, you know the salesperson there sizes you up, and says, you know, I think Aiden could afford one of these these big bikes. I'm going to sell him the big one, and uh, and so. You know, in the corner office, they may say, "Hey, we want to start competing for the uh, for the mountain bike application, the dirt bikes." You know, start to fight back against Honda, but where the rubber meets the road, where the sales guy's trying to figure out how he's going to maximize his commission, he's going to sell you the most expensive machine he thinks you're able to buy, and and that's why it just is so hard to get a company to change its stripes and prioritize things that are incompatible with its model. And why, again, you know, the, the recommendation we make when, when companies do find something that is truly disruptive is you just have to set it up completely separately because it doesn't really make sense. You know, if, if the Harley guy could sell you a Harley, that's good for Harley-Davidson. They want that to happen. If they were going to do something disruptive and sell dirt bikes, they want to sell the dirt bike to someone who's not a Harley customer. How do you expand into this new market, this niche of non-consumers, and the existing infrastructure, the exi- all of what that entails, you know, the 
service, the salespeople, the marketing, the advertising, channels, distribution, all that, it does one thing really well. Don't ask it to be different than that. You have to set up something, something else. And um, one, of the, uh, one of my dad's colleagues, Derek Van Beaver, has written about this a bit as well. Uh, you know, what's really hard, the punishing thing is you have to be working on this new stuff before you need it. Because by the time, th th when the time comes around that you, you need all that growth, the problem is that niche is not big enough when it's f first the niche to satisfy your growth appetite. You have to be incubating it early enough so that by the time you need that growth, that market is really large. Uh, and, and that takes a lot of vision and foresight and, and and frankly, not a lot of managers get given that kind of latitude by their managers or, or by the market. That, that's really tough. The Sonicide case reveals so many human tendencies. I mean, I'm, a, I'm the head of sales. You've come out with me because I'm the, I'm the killer sales gun, mm -hmm. the top gun of sales in your company. And even though you're the CEO, I ignore what you're saying because I'm going to prove to you that I'm a brilliant sales guy. Right. So it, it's so human, these, these things. And I think that's so important as well because Oftentimes you hear about, you know, so you have theory, but then you have so much of the human elements and your dad talks about that and so much so to even when we talk about when we talk to Karen Dillon about how will you measure your life, they're important questions because they actually also that they also make you look at yourself different and, and how you look at things in your in your own life. Can, can I, before Please. we move on from that, um, you know, I referenced earlier that being an academic was my dad's third career. and. I think the 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 practicality uh, of of the the prescriptions that he he, he would make and, and just the way that he would observe people sort of in their natural habitat habitat was really rooted in that right that uh, by having been in strategy consulting and then having started a company of his own uh, that that he ran for a number of years uh, he had just seen that sometimes people do. You know, the, the safest assumption is that, that people will act rationally. And, uh, and you don't get companies that fail just because everybody, as he would say, colludes to collapse. <laughs> it, it, it is because they're doing things that they should do. The incentives are set up for them to behave in the way that they behave. And frankly, more often than not, management has set those incentives in place. And so uh, you know, one of the things that I think is just really powerful about the frameworks of disruptive innovation is it isn't predicated on other people's ineptitude, incompetence, you know, these things that uh, it, in hindsight, it's sort of easy to call names. Uh, it's predicated on people doing what makes sense at the time, uh, but, but being subject as you'd kind of framed it to these very human, uh, human behaviors, uh, human motivations that, uh, that, that lead to kind of optimizing for short term in terms of long term. And, and then as it kind of comes around to how you measure your life and, and, and a lot of the things there, in, in very much the same way, I, I think that the principles that my dad um, uh, believed in and, and used to, to, to govern decisions he made in the life, excuse me, he made in his own life, uh, they were similarly eminently practical. He, he didn't think of his religious beliefs or the principles that he believed in as as kind of like a theoretical exercise uh, or or something that was sort of abstract and a tradition that he's just kind of stuck in the legacy of it. 
uh, it, 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 his beliefs had practical implications for how he, how he should behave in the course of a day. And, uh, and, and I think that practicality is one of the things that is just truly unique about these frameworks and, and really about the way my dad kind of governed his life. Yeah, because we didn't mention that he, he had his own company as well. So I know you said he worked in industry, but he actually had his own company. So that's really like along with a, a bunch of other guys. And uh, that's really understanding it and having the scar tissue. As well. and, and having so much of it not go the way he had hoped. Yeah. Maybe if just, this is kind of just yeah. pivot on this for a second. So the company uh, was called uh, Ceramics Process Systems. And today it's still around. It's a public listed company in the U.S. It's not huge, uh, called CPS Technologies. And today... You know, they've gone far beyond what um, what uh, what you know what he was trying to do, and 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 really do some compelling things with uh, with with ceramics. Um, but at the time, uh, you know, he made as a manager a lot of the mistakes that I think he he identifies later on uh, in terms of trying to take new technologies and find a solution for them and and, and integrated products that can't just take a modular solution to an integrated uh, in an integrated product architecture. Uh, and and uh, there are just a lot of interesting experiences from his own scar tissue that I think caused him to uh, come up with the, with, with the, uh, the frameworks that, that make up kind of disruption writ large, not just disruptive innovation, but jobs to be done and interdependence and modularity and so forth. Uh, so it, it is. It is hardly. The, I mean, it's not at all the case that um, that from his perspective, these frameworks are sort of all born out of success. Very much the contrary. I think uh, he feels like he made a bunch of mistakes that, in hindsight, could have been avoidable, but uh, that he didn't think were entirely irrational, and uh, he came up with ways to frame those so that other people didn't have to repeat the mistakes that he had made. There was an article that Michael Rayner, who's our forthcoming guest, wrote with your dad on the mobile industry. They wrote it on the communications industry. And they called it Integrate to, Communi in, in, integrate to Innovate. And it was about modularity, etc. And you mentioned also your dad's company that's still running. And that was very much about modularity as well. So I'd love you to tell us a little bit about that, because yeah. this is stuff that's not in the book, <laughs> and this is gold for our audience. So um, uh, ceramics process systems made, made uh, metal matrix composites. Uh, and uh, one of the parts that uh, they made in the very early days was they, they got a contract to make the small components uh, for uh, piston rods for BMW engines. And uh, you know, there are all kinds of complexity and challenges in, in, in trying to make those, uh, those components. And, and CPS was trying to go from things that work on a laptop, uh, you know, that work in the lab to, to production scale and all kinds of problems with that. Uh, but but they, they got it, they nailed it. And, uh, and so my dad you know, got a, uh, uh, a briefcase full of these parts, you know, put them in foam padding, flies over to Munich, they put them in the test engine, uh, and you know, the piston rod connects the, the, the piston that goes up and down to the rod that turns the, the, the central powertrain in the motor. Uh, and um, as they swapped out the, the rods that were on this test engine and replaced them with the, 
with the ceramic parts and turned it on, the, the, the engine just began to vibrate uncontrollably uh, until it, it, it ceased. And um, what they didn't think of, but in hindsight would have been uh, pretty easy to identify if, if, if you had been thinking about it, is that in designing the engine itself, the engineers had, had accommodated the reciprocating mass of the metal uh, piston rods that they had been using. And when you change those out and replace them with things that are stronger and lighter weight, then actually the whole design is no longer in balance. And, and so even though it seems like you can swap out one part and, and flip in a new one, uh, you can't. It's the, the system is fully integrated. And, um, and so, you know, they met the spec, but BMW never became a customer. Uh, so not much later than that, Toyota called and said, hey, we have this other idea. Uh, we'd like for you to, to make parts for our engines. And man, I said, ah, we've yeah, <laughs> <laughs> got some experience with that. We, car company maybe not right for us. And they asked, what was it? And, and he explained, he said, no, that, that, that was a stupid mistake. They should know better. This is not what we want you to do for us. We'd like you to make uh, cylinder liners. So the, one of the properties of a ceramic is it, uh, it has a coefficient of thermal expansion of close to zero and is a great insulator. And so if you put it in, uh, in a cylinder uh, and you have the piston moving inside of it, you trap the energy in there so it doesn't just dissipate as lost heat through the engine. It makes it burn more efficiently so you have fewer, uh, uh, fewer emissions. Uh, so they asked him, can you kind of, you know, make a cylinder liner that will fit this tight spec? And it took him forever. They finally did it. He flies over to Toyota City uh, outside of Tokyo. They put it in the, the engine, turn it on. You know, he's kind of waiting for the thing to start vibrating. <laughs> it didn't. Uh, it was going great until all of a sudden it didn't. And it, the engine seized and that was it. Well, it ends up that... Uh, it worked basically the way that they hoped it would. It, it trapped the heat. But what they didn't appreciate is that when you trap the heat in the cylinder like that, and it just gets hotter and hotter and hotter, uh, the lubricants, the petroleum-based lubricants that you use in an engine, uh, lose their viscosity. And the, the piston then isn't lubricated as it's moving in, in, the, in the cylinder, and it, it seizes. So you couldn't, e even though it met the spec and did what they wanted, uh, still even then, it isn't sufficiently modular uh, for you to be able to change this, this element of the engine uh, because you don't control the manufacture of the lubricants. The lubricants break down at those high temperatures that, that they were aiming for uh, with, with the cylinder liners. It's just two stories from his experience. We were kind of talking about scar tissue before. Uh, two, two stories from his experience at CPS that I think gave him an understanding of some of the problems that he tried to solve later on uh, in, in developing the framework of interdependence and modularity. So let's give a little overview of that, interdependence and modularity, because it's an important thing. And there's a quote I was, I was flicking through there as you were speaking, because it reminded me of, of something I took down that your dad wrote that generally disruptive innovations were technologically straightforward, consisting of off-the-shelf components put together in a product architecture that was often simpler than prior approaches. And 
I was thinking also of that, that little quote. The reason I thought that it reminded me, we had Steve Sass on, on the show before, the guy who developed the first digital camera for Kodak. Mm. And it was this monstrosity. It was like a Frankenstein, a bit of this and a bit of that all hacked together. And he's like, ta-da. And he went around the organization. And he was only 26 at the time. And everybody's like kind of going, how much is this thing going to cost? And, and it often reminded me of that, that you're going to get shot for your, for your caterpillar always because it's going to look terrible. But this idea of it's hacked together components uh, oftentimes doesn't work and breaks down. The, like the first iPhone on stage didn't work. We know that story. <laughs> and by the way, I wanted to mention to our audience, that is a great story. Steve yeah. Jobs was a huge fan of this book as well. So I, I'm throwing a lot of the here, but bring it wherever you like. Yeah, the, the um, well, w one of the things that, that you had talked about earlier was um, uh, overshoot. And, and one of the things that is in, not in the innovator's dilemma, but is in the innovator's solution, uh, is that as um, as products continue to improve, uh, as they get to be better than people need them to be, uh, then the product architecture usually shifts. The basis of competition changes so that instead of uh, people buying a product that is just the best on what has historically been the primary measure of value in an industry, it shifts uh, and people start to care more about things like customizability, speed to market, uh, different kinds of plug and play features that really demand a modular product architecture. Uh, so what the, the theory of, of interdependence and modularity suggests is that uh, during whatever time a product is not good enough for what the target customers you're, you're going after are trying to, to accomplish, you need to have an integrated product architecture that allows you to optimize the performance of that product for that measure of performance that those customers are seeking. But as soon as you get to a point where it does what they need it to do, then the product architecture should switch from integrated to modular. And that product architecture then um, uh, allows, uh, th that product architecture switch changes the whole ecosystem around the product so that uh, you know, the value isn't captured in making the whole thing, it's made, captured in making the components the assembly is kind of commodified and, and things change pretty radically. So the, the framework is very, uh, very po powerful and I, th I think one that maybe we talk about less often than, uh, than we should. When I introduced you, I, I introduced you as managing partner, CEO, and co-founder of Rose Park Advisors. The founder with you was your dad, Clay. And earlier on you mentioned how, and I didn't know that about you were out in mission when he was, when the book came out and the copy came in the post, etc. And I thought about how much it informed your life in many ways uh, and your business life, not only in a personal level, but in a business life. And it gives you this amazing lens through which to look at potential. So you don't kill caterpillars, you actually actively seek them out mm -hmm. and kind of go, is that disruptive? Has it been on the shelf of a company before and ignored? Give it to me. That's exactly what I'm looking for. It's a huge competitive advantage for you as an investor. And I know your brother Spencer also works in the company as well. You guys must be absolutely loving this and living it every single day. Maybe you'll give us a, a bit of a, an overview of what Rose Park does. Yeah. Um, we, uh, well, maybe I'll, I'll back up even a little further than that. Um, you know, like a lot of people, I, I think, you know, my dad was always my hero. Um, uh, you know, 
I had the advantage, I think, in some ways of, uh, you know, most kids think their dad is the biggest and strongest. Ends up that my dad was usually bigger than most, <laughs> most other dads. Um, but uh, um, throughout my career, I've just kind of progressively made decisions that let me work more and more closely with him. So I, I had uh, worked as an intern, uh, as an undergraduate uh, in, uh, in capital markets, um, uh, before the global financial crisis back in, in 2001, doing uh, credit derivatives and default swaps, credit default swaps. And I thought it was fascinating, but um, had the opportunity to go to BCG and kind of follow in my dad's footsteps there. And, and so took that. And, uh, and then um, some of his former students uh, started a consulting company called InnoSight that was based on helping companies grapple with the challenges that disruptive innovation, challenges and opportunities uh, that disruptive innovation presents to them. And so had the opportunity to leave BCG and go to InnoSight. And that meant I got to work, you know, more with my dad and his ideas and those things. And, and, uh, and then after a few years, I had the opportunity to uh, take the investing that we had been doing just as a family and professionalize that and, and co-found Rose Park with him. So um, I just have always had the opportunity or have availed myself of the opportunity to to get closer and closer to him. Uh, and that's just as kind of a common theme uh, in my life uh, and and have uh, will we'll forever be grateful for that. We named Rose Park after the neighborhood in Salt Lake City where my dad grew up. He, he grew up in a in a wonderful community um, that, uh, that that didn't have a lot to do with the um, the, uh, <laughs> the the uh, the the large ego bombastic um, kind of <laughs> world of finance, and and uh, and I, I really thought that uh, it was important that we keep our heads screwed on straight and uh, and uh, and that we stayed grounded and, and so thought we should name the firm Rose Park after uh, that community where he grew up uh, and had so many people who he loved and thought highly of, uh, none of whom were hedge fund managers or things like that. And, uh, and I, I hope that, that we've been true to that. Um, in kind of a classic fashion, you know, one of the things um, that, that my dad spent a lot of time thinking about was something he called the theory of theory building. Uh, and, and, and basically what he, he observes is uh, that um, a theory is a, is a good explanation of what causes what and why. Uh, it's not the correlation between a phenomenon and an outcome, but you, you strive to understand causality. And um, one of our feelings in how we think about investing is uh, that disruption and these other frameworks are causal in driving investment outcomes. And that other attributes that often get closely examined in finance, at least through the way that we look at the world, are not. Uh, so from the beginning, we created Rose Park very differently to be able to invest in uh, public or private companies, uh, different geographies around the world, uh, different industries, different stages. Um, but with this laser, very narrow focus on these frameworks that we think we understand better than anybody in the world because we created them. And, uh, and so, you know, from the beginning, we've invested in public companies like Netflix and 
and private companies like Coupang in, in, in Korea uh, and, and uh, you know, Nomi Health uh, in the U.S. Um, and, and, and many others, uh, many other wonderful entrepreneurs that we've been able to work with. But in all cases, we're using these research frameworks not only to identify where we think interesting opportunities lie, but then also, you know, as is invariably the case, as we kind of start down a path with an entrepreneur trying to figure out what the future holds for the company that, that, uh, that we're all working together on, we learned that some of the things we thought at the beginning are not correct and we have to adapt. And, and one of the really powerful things I think about these frameworks is that they help us think through what we should do about the new information that we're learning and how we navigate a path forward uh, rather than uh, uh, just kind of making a one-time decision about invest or not and then it's over. Uh, I, I think that's a big part of the reason why we've been able to be successful uh, and, and a big part of what makes the job really fun. And like you said earlier on, you, you saw the importance of sustainability and ESG and all those things years ago. So you've already done all that work and built that com- capability within the company. For people who want to find you as a ro- in Rose Park, where, where's the best place? Just info at roseparkadvisors.com. Uh, and and we, we love to hear about what people are working on and, and uh, uh, would love to hear if people think we're wrong about something. You know, we, we've got a mantra that my dad created that I think we've We've uh, we've tried to stay true to anomalies wanted. Yes. Uh, you know, if, if 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 people think we're wrong or they they've come up with something that we've missed, uh, we just want to get better. And so uh, we we are we are all ears. Um, just as one example of that, uh, when I was working at Innosight, um, so this would have been in uh, 2004, maybe. Uh, somebody uh, sent me an email there. Uh, asking a question about a diagram in the innovator's dilemma. <laughs> and, um, and it ended up that there's a mistake in, in the original printing of, of the book and the, everybody had missed it. You know, Harvard Business Press missed it. Uh, my dad had missed it. Um, and, uh, and it took this person, you know, sending in an email saying, can you explain to me this doesn't make sense? And we looked at it and said, no, it doesn't make sense. And we realized it's because the axes are reversed. And, uh, so, uh, you know, the idea of new market versus low end disruption, all those things come from people identifying anomalies. I, I think uh, to come back to the theory of theory building, the way the theory gets better is by identifying what it doesn't explain and then trying to figure out how to improve it. That consistently comes out in all the books. I have to say that that humility, that intellectual humility, and, and you said your, your daddy even seemed to grow into that as the books went on and the success rolled on as well. It's been such a pleasure and I hope your audience have, have absolutely enjoyed it. I, I didn't know the tree, but if the apple is anything like the tree, he's a great man. Matt Christensen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Cheers, man. I am so grateful to Matt Christensen for flying over, especially to be with us here in Dublin in the iconic offices. I want to thank our sponsor, Next Estate. Next Estate is an English-speaking, Berlin-based buyer-seller and manager of properties for the German market. You can find them at next-estate.com.